Good morning. As Derek said, I'm Marianne. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and it's my, my joy and privilege to, to be here with you this morning. July 20th, 1969. Ring a, ring a bell? I will never forget that day. Um, I, was, uh, I, was, I was like eight, almost nine years old. And I was with my family in our cabin in Montana. So we had this rhythm growing up where we lived during the school year, we lived in California, but then as soon as school got out in June, we would get in the car and we would drive to Montana where we'd spend the entire summer living in a cabin way back in the woods. Like there was no television, there was no radio, there was an old landline phone. There was nobody around for like 30 miles. It was just the most amazing experience growing up deep in the forest. And it was such a direct contrast to what it was like living the rest of the year in the San Francisco Bay Area. But on this particular day, I'll never forget, we got into our family station wagon and we drove 15 miles up the Galton Canyon to a bar called Bucks T4, where we watched television. We watched TV that day with millions of people around the globe who were all turning in, by the way, to their black and white TVs to watch Apollo 11 land on the moon. I mean, to watch what was previously considered impossible, that people could set foot on the moon. On that day in particular, three men made history. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrich, and Michael Collins. And after this moment where three men made history, Michael Collins revealed to the world that there was many more than three men in, behind that moment. In fact, there were 400,000 people behind the scenes of those three men stepping on the moon. He said this, he was, the, he was the Apollo 11 pilot, and he said, all of this is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of thousands of people. All you see are the three of us, but underneath the surface are thousands and thousands of others. It took nearly half a million people to put three men on the moon. And what Paul is gonna tell us today is that it takes every believer in the body of Christ around the globe to build God's church on earth. Last week, we continued our deep dive into Romans. We went deeper into Romans 12. And last week, you might remember that Paul challenged us to look within ourselves to identify our true convictions. If, we're not, if, our, if the way we're behaving, he said, is not aligning with what we believe or what we profess to believe, then we have to go back to the drawing board and re-examine our convictions. Pastor Adam reminded us, I love how he put this last week, that, that conduct will always follow our convictions. I remembered that all week long. Conduct will follow our convictions. And so, likewise, when we're able to lay ourselves down as living sacrifices to God, it's because we truly love him and we truly want to worship him with our whole lives. In the first two verses of Romans 12, Paul was addressing our heart posture before God. 
And now in this passage that we're looking at today in verses three through eight, he's gonna address our relationships with each other within the context of the church. Paul is teaching us relational theology. Um, first, he's saying in, in verses one and two, we have to have a right relationship, a vertical relationship with God. And then he's gonna talk to us about kind of looking inward and making sure that we have a proper perspective of ourselves and then we can branch into the horizontal relationship that we have with each other. So will you open your Bibles to Romans chapter three, chapter three, chapter 12, starting at verse three. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and the ushers will bring one to you this morning. It's always great to have the Bible in your hands as you also look at the screens. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word, would you pray with me? Father, I, I ask you this morning, to please open our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to listen to you. Help us, Lord, so that we can know how you have created us to be instruments in the body of Christ, to be, to be contributors in the ways that you have designed us. And we pray that you would pour humility into our hearts so that we would be willing and able to love others more than we love ourselves. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. If you love outlines, and I know many of you do, here's my outline for this morning. You can take notes. Let's jump, jump in. Paul begins in verse three to explain how we are humbled by grace. So we need to remember that Paul is writing to the local church in Rome. And he has just challenged them not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but to renew their minds on the will of God. And a renewed mind is a humble mind, like the mind of Christ. So how are they gonna do that? They are living in a fiercely competitive and highly sophisticated society. The ancient, their ancient Roman culture um, elevates honor and status. They are achievement-minded. They are education-minded. These are highly esteemed values in their day. So how are they gonna think of themselves rightly in the midst of a culture that celebrate, celebrates self-aggrandizement? Sound familiar? We live in a culture that celebrates the same things. So he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Literally, that phrase means, do not superthink of yourself. 
Our human nature is to superthink of ourselves. It, our human nature drives us to either overestimate ourselves in comparison to other people or to underestimate ourselves, right? We're either puffing ourselves up with pride or we're deflating our self-worth before God and before others. Now, Paul doesn't actually mention both sides of this pendulum, but, but we tend to think of ourselves in extremes. We're either puffed up or we're overly self-condemning. Remember, Paul was once an arrogant man. He was haughty and he was proud because he had such a brilliant mind. He also felt a sense of privilege because he was educated and mentored by one of the most famous teachers in Israel named Gamaliel. And he had this very prestigious position as a Pharisee in Israel. But in his arrogance, he had been completely blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah until he was on the road to Damascus and then he became literally blinded by the radiant glory of Christ who appeared to him as he was going out to persecute and arrest believers. So Paul is actually speaking from his own experience with pride. He knows how damaging it is when we don't have a proper perspective of ourselves or of the people around us. So rather than basing our estimation of ourselves on subjective feelings, Paul is actually challenging us to think soberly or rightly about ourselves in relationship with Christ. Our, our feelings are actually not reliable indicators of our, our condition before God or of our moral condition, of our spiritual condition. He says, let's go back to verse three and, and read it again. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Who's the measure of our faith? It's Jesus. Jesus is the measure of our faith. And when we look to Jesus as our standard, we will exalt him for his greatness and we won't compare ourselves to each other. The key to renewing our minds so that we can think rightly about ourselves is to focus our eyes on Christ. To see ourselves in light of him instead of looking at ourselves through the lens of other people that we're comparing ourselves with. You and I aren't the standard of comparison. The standard of comparison is Jesus. He is our prime example. So when we think of these terms, when you think of yourself soberly in comparison to your relationship with Christ, you will experience profound humility. You will see yourself as God sees you instead of looking to each other for comparison. The truth is that when we see ourselves as God sees us, we will think rightly about ourselves in relation to others. Now, how do you think God sees you? Have you ever thought about it? How does God actually see you? Do you know? Paul gives us a vivid description of how God sees us in the first chapter of Ephesians. When you and I are in a, in a right relationship with God through Christ, by grace, through faith, Paul tells us in Ephesians how God sees us. We'll just put the text up there for your eyes to glaze over as I, as I point some things out to you. The first thing he, he tells us in this passage is that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in verse three. 
Verse four tells us that, that you've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And four tells us that he has actually set you apart as holy and blameless before him. Verse five tells us that he ha in love he has adopted you into his eternal family. Verse six, you've been blessed by grace because of your relationship with his beloved Jesus. Verse seven says that you have been redeemed by his blood and forgiven of all of your sins by the riches of his grace. Verses eight through 10 say that he has lavished upon you all wisdom and insight and revealed mysteries to us about his plans for the future through his word. Verse 11 says that he has given you an inheritance for all eternity. Verse 13, he has revealed the truth to you of the gospel so that you can believe and be saved. And verses 13 and 14 says that he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit as a guarantee that you belong to him forever and you'll be with him for all eternity. This is how God sees us. Forgiven, cho chosen, holy, set apart, sealed with his spirit. When he looks at you, this is who he sees you to be. So think about it. What possible accomplishments, education, achievements, wealth, good works can define us more than this? Is there anything that we've done that, that can possibly compare to what we receive in Christ? Do we have anything to be arrogant about in light of all that Christ has done for us. Paul had a similar message for the Corinthian church because they also were dealing with the pressure of like politics and, and striving for prestige and they were, they were being overcome by these worldly temptations to think more highly of themselves than they ought. And so this is what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 26 through 29. He said, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of God. When we are able to see ourselves as God sees us, we will have a proper view of ourselves in light of God's mercy, which is what Paul's been teaching us. When we experience true humility, and true humility only comes by seeing ourselves rightly before him, then we will actually esteem each other more highly in the body of Christ. Humble people are instrumental in fostering community within the greater community of the body of Christ. Well, let's continue now because in verses four and five, Paul then shows how we are unified by need. So while people in the world's economy often use their gifts and talents to compete against each other for individual glory, believers are able to use their gifts and talents to bless each other for the sake of God's glory. So verse four says, for as in one body we, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul doesn't use the word church here, but he's talking about the church, the, the body of Christ. He's talking about the church. And he's using visual imagery to try to help us understand the church. 
He's picturing the church in relation to the human body. And every part of the human body, as we know, has a purpose and a function that is vital to the, the whole. We know this, hands for grasping and holding and feet for walking and standing. And, and we have eyes for seeing and ears for hearing. And then all of our internal organs have to work together perfectly in order for us to maintain health, right? If you uh, have a lame body part, like I do, I have a lame knee. This knee has to be replaced. It will not support me any longer. When you have a lame body part, you know that everything is off, right? Your gait is off, your, your, your hips are twisted, you have pain, you cannot exercise your heart and lungs like you need to because you can't mobilize yourself and get your heart rate up. When some part of the body isn't working, every part of the body is affected. We need each body part to work according to its design function. So Paul's describing the church as, as one body in Christ with many members who have a variety of gifts and functions that are necessary for the sake of the whole. This phrase, this phrase body of Christ is, is a really important description of the church in scripture. As we, as we go through scripture and we try to wrap our minds around what is the body of Christ, what is the church, we learn that Jesus, we know from Colossians, is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. We know that in Matthew that Jesus is building his church and, and Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We know as we look to Acts that the church was birthed at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and believed people from all nations believed in Christ as their savior and came to saving faith. We know when we look at Matthew that the church is built by each member who confesses Jesus as Lord the way that the apostle Peter did. In the, in the scripture, the church is, God, is referred to as God's called out community of people. It's, the word is ecclesia. It's a people who've been called out from the world and they are characterized by their, their common belief and they worship and fellowship and obey God's word. The church consists of all people over all time in all nations. Did you know that? All people, all time, all nations. We are the visible church, right? We're the ones here on earth worshiping him. And we share this commonality as the visible church with, with every brother and sister in the city of Portland, in the country, in the world, who is worshiping and belonging to Christ. But there's an invisible church, and the invisible church is all of those who have gone before us, all of those who have lived before us by faith, who are still part of the church and they're worshiping from heaven. Paul elaborates in Ephesians about this, the oneness of this church. He says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God has given each member of the church their unique function for the oneness or the unification of the whole body. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity is not sameness. Unity is actually accomplished through diversity. It's through our differences. What we share in common is our common love for God. We have shared affection for him. 
But amidst that, each member is diverse in his or her own gifts and own calling to function within the whole. And so it's as every person contributes to the whole that the church is healthy and vital in the world. The truth is that we are all interconnected members of Christ's body. And somebody needs you and you need someone. Our son, Adam, many of you know, he has a, a physical disability. He has muscular dystrophy. And over the course of his life, his muscles have wasted away to the point where he really doesn't have any use of the members of his body. He can't, he can't use his arms or his legs. He can't touch his face. He can't scratch his head. He can't stand up and walk across the room. He can't reach his hand out to shake your hand. He can't give you a hug. He can't get himself dressed. He can't eat breakfast by himself or brush his teeth or comb his hair. He can't do very much. And so because the members of his body are weak, he really needs help. So our family, which consists of my husband Bob and myself and our son Spencer, we use our bodies to do what he cannot do for himself. We work as a team. So in the morning, I, I get Adam dressed, and then I use a lift, and I transfer him into his chair, and I comb his hair, and I wash his face, and I put his cologne on, and get him ready for the day, and, and then I feed him breakfast, and um, give him his medications, get him ready, and then put him in the car, and, and bring him here to work, where he works all day with me. All day long, we share a symbiotic relationship. Everything I do for myself, I do for him. I need to eat, he needs to eat. I need to use the restroom, he needs to use the restroom. All day long, I need a drink, he needs a drink. We work in tandem together. When we get home, then Bob takes over in the evening. We help him eat dinner, give him his medications, put him on the toilet, shower him, undress him, put him into bed. And then Spencer steps in. Spencer then comes in and puts his breathing mask on so that he can have assistance breathing during the night and then maintains his comfort. Uh, if he needs to be repositioned or rolled or whatever he needs, that's Spencer's job. So we, we are, our family motto for years has been one for all and all for one because we have someone in our family who literally can do nothing without help. We're all invested in being Adam's arms and legs. We're, we call ourselves his pit crew because he's a huge Formula One fan. So we say, we're your pit crew. But we, we invest to be his arms and legs so that he can use his gifts in the body of Christ. As Kylie mentioned, he is the communications director here. He leads the team. He sets strategic direction for communication strategy of the church. He manages the website. He oversees production and design. Though his body is weak, he has incredible gifts to contribute to the church. But if we didn't use the members of our bodies to serve him, he wouldn't be able to use his gifts and talents for the members of the body of Christ, which is you. And in the same way, you are instrumental in setting someone else free to use their gifts. Someone needs you, and you need someone. We are not autonomous individuals as we discovered in COVID, right? 
We don't do well in isolation. We are human beings who are created in the image of God. And by the way, God lives in community with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he made us to, to live in community. And the church is the greatest gift that God has given his people on earth until he returns again one day. We are interconnected members of the body of Christ and we need each other. Well, Paul goes on then to share seven of the spiritual gifts that God gives to believers as we look at verses six through eight. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word gifts in the Greek is charismata, and it actually appears 17 times in scripture and 16 times in Paul's writing. Now, this word charis means grace, and so these are literally grace gifts given by God. God gives personal gifts to each of his children that are according to his grace, and we know grace means unmerited favor. So, so God gives gifts according to his own purpose and his own pleasure, and it's not based on anything that we've done or anything that we deserve. It's purely him and his decision to give what he desires. Now, every believer has at least one gift, and each gift is meant to be used for God's glory according to his purposes. Gifts are never, spiritual gifts are never to be used for our own glory, we see how terribly wrong in the world things go when some amazing, gifted preacher turns the spotlight around on themselves and it's all downhill from there. Because that's not how the gifts are meant to be used. It's always for God's glory. And each gift is designed to build up the church, to foster greater unity and health in the body of Christ. So Paul, we see, lists seven gifts here, but there are other passages in Scripture that have a, a, a broader list. I guess there are actually 19 spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture. Paul's only touched on seven of them, so this isn't comprehensive. But I want to share a little bit to get you thinking about how God might, be, have, might have gifted you. First, he talks about prophesying. And when we, we hear the word prophecy, we tend to think of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. But Paul, remember, he's speaking to believers in Rome, and there were no apostles in Rome. The literal meaning of, of the word to, prophes to prophesy actually means to speak on behalf of another person. A classic example of that is back in Exodus when God allowed or chose Aaron to speak on behalf of Moses because Moses felt like he couldn't speak very clearly. So Aaron was was chosen to prophesy on behalf of Moses in front of Pharaoh. Now, in the early church, believers with this gift were people who spoke under the influence of the Holy Spirit to communicate God's revealed word or his revealed truth. And Paul is exhorting people with this gift in the early church. He's saying, you have to do this in proportion to your faith. In other words, speak only what God has revealed to you. Do not extrapolate beyond what the Spirit has revealed. The gift of prophecy is a beautiful gift in the church today. It's the ability of preachers and teachers to expound the scriptures in a way that makes the word come alive. Makes the word shine is what it literally means. 
Um, a person who is gifted to be God's mouthpiece to, to the general congregation is able, with the words that the Spirit gives, to shine a light so brilliantly on the word that it penetrates the darkness and illuminates truth. The literary, literary, literary imagery is this person who can shine. We see this in, in 2 Peter. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And here's the warning. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Again, the person who has this gift has a high level of accountability to not speak things that are beyond what the Spirit has revealed or God has given for his interpretation. The second is serving, and this word is often translated as ministry. Serving can take, obviously, many different forms. There was a whole team in the kitchen this morning filling up the communion cups, people at the front door greeting, coffee team has been here, sound and tech team has been here, worship team. Serving takes so many different forms. Um, people can, can serve in a variety of ways, but who is the premier example of service? It's Jesus. Matthew 28, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the thing about being a follower of Christ is that we are all called to serve, regardless of whether we have the gift of serving. But people who do have this gift have a special ability to serve with a cheerful spirit. They take incredible joy in serving, and that joy just rubs off on everybody they encounter. And we know who those people are, right? They're the people that when you're a teammate on their team, they bring so much joy to the task. Or they're the ones that we encounter on the front door when we walk in on Sunday mornings. They just exude joy because they love to serve so much. Now teaching, teachers have the ability to communicate God's word with ease and clarity. Teaching is the gift of imparting knowledge, of discovering principles of truth, of unearthing applications that can be applied to daily life. The primary distinction between teaching and prophecy is that teaching tends to impart information, whereas prophecy tends to elicit transformation. One tends to be more informative, one tends to impact the will and the heart, although both are, go together. Teachers and preachers together can impart information and inspire life change. The next one he talks about is exhortation, which is the same as encouragement or encouraging. This is the Greek word um, parakletos. It's used 107 times in scripture, and this is the same word used of the Holy Spirit. Because a person who has the gift of encouragement is, is mimicking the Holy Spirit. The word actually means to come alongside and to help another out. We know Barnabas was an amazing example of someone who was an encourager who came alongside John Mark and walked with him and encouraged him. A person with this gift is able to comfort others and pray for others and to, to exhort others um, with, with effectiveness and compassion. I see this gift in our prayer team that waits patiently over here at the end of each service to, to pray with someone, to comfort, to hold a hand, to come alongside, to, to pour out encouragement and hope to those each Sunday who need encouragement. Giving is another gift like serving. We are all called to give generously, we are, just like we are all called to serve. Giving and serving are, are acts of worship that just flow naturally out of our love for Christ. 
But for some, generosity is a spiritual gift. And it's not based on how much a person has, it's based on this deep pleasure that a person feels when they're contributing to the needs of another person. Often, it's those who are materially poor who have this gift of, of generous giving, where those sometimes who are materially rich tend to be more reserved in their giving. Now again, we're all called to give, but it's how we experience the pleasure of God as we give and meet needs for people who can't meet their own needs. Leadership can be seen in people who enjoy leading others in ministry. Paul uses this team as for people who have this God-given ability to provide guidance and administration to a group. Leadership is essential spiritual gift, especially in the church. Most elders uh, have the gift of leadership and we depend on them to make wise and discerning decisions for the body at large. And then mercy, people with a gift of mercy are able to have cheerful interactions with people who, who tend to be in a difficult place. Paul uses actually this word, he says, people who, give, who have the gift of mercy are to do so cheerfully. And the word that he used for cheerful is hilaritetai, which is where we get the word hilarious. So think of the joy that comes from a person who has mercy. This person loves to come alongside others who are in perilous situations and bring joy because the, the, the Lord is the source of their joy and their perspective. People with gifts of mercy are often drawn to those who are in poverty or sickness or abuse. They have the ability to be in the hardest places with people and bring joy through their kindness and their care. Now notice there are really like two categories. There's the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. So Paul has listed four speaking gifts, prophesy, teaching, uh, leadership, and encouragement and three serving gifts, serving, giving, and mercy. And these are the two basic function in the church for each one of us, where we should either be speaking or serving or some combination of the two. Do any of these gifts resonate with you? As I kind of went through and explained, is there anything that you're like, yeah, I think that's me? Can you identify how God has gifted you? If you are in Christ, you have at least one gift, and most likely you have a set of gifts. And they're all in a unique combination that are meant to serve and function in the body at large. You are important to the body of Christ. This truth is that you have a, a gift or a set of gifts that are essential for the health of the whole church body. Now, if you want to discover more about how God has equipped you, we have next Sunday, the 22nd, right after the 11 o'clock service, we have an equip lunch. This is kind of like a class with food. We know we love to eat together and fellowship together over food. And Pastor Christopher will lead you through an assessment and give you some training and give you an opportunity to, to do some evaluating to say, you know, how has God gifted me? What is my area of passion? What makes my heart skip a beat? What, what is the ways in which I feel I'm worshiping God when I use this gift? So you can come and you can discover a little bit more about how God has designed you. Or as Paul told Timothy, we want you to come so we can fan into flame the gifts that God has given you. You know, at our staff meeting, we have a Wednesday morning staff meeting, and this week at our staff meeting, we had a two and a half hour safety training. 
Typically, that's not the most exciting way to spend two and a half hours, but it was actually really, really good. Our training team, our training was led by a man in our congregation who has taken the reins of volunteer leadership over our church safety program. And he shared with us his story, and as he did, it was so clear that he has had a lifetime of equipping for this role. He has a background working with the Forest Service, years and years being a part of the fire department. He has emergency response training and experience and water rescue training and experience. He's been educated by professionals in his field, even taking classes from the FBI. He has experience as a leader and a trainer in safety protocols, and he has spiritual gifts for service, for teaching, for administration. These were so obvious to me after just a few hours of listening to him take us through this, this training time. And I thought, what a blessing it is for our whole church that he has been called by God to use his spiritual gifts along with all of his training and all of his experience to keep us safe in this building so that we can freely worship. Because he's using his gifts, we are free to use ours. I can stand here on a Sunday morning and I'm not afraid that someone's gonna come in the back door and harm me because I know he's using his gifts in this very moment. Because 400,000 people worked behind the scenes of Apollo 11, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were free to plant their feet on the soil of the moon. Because three people in my family are using their arms and legs to support Adam, he is free to come here to River West and use his gifts to be a blessing to the whole church body. So who will you serve? How will your gifts be used to set someone else free to use their gifts? What can you contribute to the health and the vitality of the church at large? Because the church is the body of Christ where every single member is vital for ministry. That means you, you are vital for ministry. I wanna invite the worship team to come back up, but I have a few more thoughts for you. Because I think this is, to me, the brilliance of God through what Paul has been writing. See, you see what God knows? God knows that humility empowers service. He knows that when we think rightly about ourselves before God, then we're inspired to use our gifts to serve others. And he also knows that service cultivates humility. Because when we lay ourselves down and when we serve others, and you know what? Oftentimes we're not serving when we feel 100%, when we've got all the energy in the world or all the time in the world. Service comes in the midst of a lot of difficulties. But when we lay ourselves down because we've lifted another one higher and we've served, God pours into us profound humility. Humility empowers service and service cultivates humility and it's full circle. Now, of course, who's the greatest example of a humble service, th servant the world has ever known? Jesus. Paul writes about him in Philippians 2. He says, have this among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.